everyone. It's been a while since we've done any sort of interview and we have a real treat for you. If you're involved in astronomy and space in any sort of capacity and you have the internet, which as being as it's 2020, why haven't you? And how on earth are you listening to this anyway? Um, we have with us the publisher of Universe Today, the most fantastic website and resource, which has been around since 1999. Yes, the internet has been going for that long, people. I think I'd only discovered it just a couple of years before, to be honest. <laughs> um, we have the co-host um, and writer of Astronomy Cast. We have the co-creator of the Guide to Space videos. You can see him on YouTube. This is the most fantastic science communicator. I am talking about Fraser Kane, of course. Welcome to Awesome Astronomy. Welcome to the show, Fraser Kane. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. So, I mean, you do so much with space. Right, uh-huh. like, yes. where where did it all begin? Were you always interested <laughs> in space? Yeah, or is this just like a later life thing? Like, what what's occurring? A little of both. A little of both. So I I was I've always been interested in space. Like f- from a little kid, um, uh, very lucky that I had very uh, enthusiast science minded, enthusiastic parents. Uh, they would take me out to see meteor showers. I learned some of my constellations. I happen to live in very dark skies. Um, we watched Star Trek when I was a kid. Uh, you know, my yeah, father my dad had a, a Trekkie. Yeah, my father had, a, had a, yeah. <laughs> a shelf of, of science fiction books that I went through at the when I was about uh, maybe 12. Started to read his, his sci-fi books, classic, you know, Asimov and and Arthur C. Clarke type stuff. Um, and I bought my own telescope when I was like 14 years old and, and started to learn more about the sky. And then when I was in high school, I was in my journalism program uh, and I reported, I did a column every month for the paper all about what you could see in the night sky, space and astronomy stuff. Um, and then I went to university and went a completely different track and ended up in the computer field and sort of set space and astronomy off to the side, apart from reading the occasional book and still being very enthusiastic. You know, I watched the, the Mars landing for the original uh, Pathfinder, things like that. And then I was, uh, we were developing websites for customers, for like banks and um, power companies and lotteries and all the exciting things. Yeah, really, you know, like, you know, I, I, I must have personally been the, the project manager on like four or five bank websites. And, and I wanted to, and I found that people just weren't listening to my crazy ideas. And so I said, well, I'm just going to build a website on the side that takes one of my hobbies and just lets me run with it. Yeah, because if there's a place for crazy ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I need some practical experience where I can go, here's a crazy idea. And, and they would say like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, here, look at the evidence. So I picked one of my hobbies at mostly random. I was like reading a bunch of books about space. I was reading actually Pale Blue Dot by Carl Sagan at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I'll do, I want to learn more about space. So I'll make a website about space. And so I'll learn about space at the same time that I'm practicing some of my ideas. And it definitely fulfilled that. Like I suddenly knew a ton about how to run a website. 
But the sort of more existential thing that I discovered was that this was all I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Like now it's just a matter of getting out of the corporate field, taking these skills that I had developed as a website developer mm. and actually run a website about about space and astronomy. And that's and that was back in 1999. I mean, it's almost like it's a lot of foresight you had because these days, computers and astronomy, they almost go hand in hand, you know, especially with all the imaging that people do, the the go to telescopes. And, you know, that's without even mentioning, you know, the fact that almost all all the way people do astronomy these days is using the Internet. You know, I mean, people do get the books out and stuff like that, but it is going on websites, reading the news articles listening to podcasts maybe <laughs> yeah well i think i mean i think definitely but i think the deeper insight that i had that proved out was that people would just use the internet for news i mean again mm. this is like before even newspapers had any kind of problem and and so there weren't a lot of sources for uh just getting information online and so just from the very dna of of universe today it was purely internet i had no no print, no newspaper, no um, no books, nothing. It was all just online. No television, no radio. Um, <laughs> I've yeah, I've since built the internet equivalents of those things, but it definitely didn't exist in the in the beginning, and that gave me freedom, uh, complete lack of gatekeepers that I could just go and and I didn't have anybody telling me what I could and couldn't do, what I could and couldn't say. It was just the the feedback from the internet telling me whether or not I was doing a good job or not. If I made a mistake scientifically, if I got a little too outside of my knowledge, I got slapped um, <laughs> by the collective uh, understanding of the internet. And, and so I really, it was just like a trial by fire for <laughs> 20 plus years now. Um, but you seem to have survived okay. Well, I, I mean, I think you have to go into this without, like, if you're going to do this work on the internet, I think it's really important to not have a lot of ego about what you do. And yeah. so I will say something that is not correct, and I get corrected. And either you can internalize that and say, okay, never make that mistake again. Okay, you know, read up again, understand where you made the mistake. Yeah do a better job next time or you get grumpy and so my approach has always been the former to always just say okay oh yeah yep fair fair play you got me um mm. you know i was inaccurate at the orbital velocity of earth and i will never make that mistake again i will make future mistakes but i won't make that mistake again yeah and that's exactly the right attitude because you know we're we're just human you know we're imperfect we don't know everything that's out there you know, I get yeah. it all the time. Like, I go and do a talk or something, and sometimes they people ask questions. I'm like, I genuinely have no idea. But that's great because now you're expanding my knowledge. Yeah, I think, you know, it's possible that I have an inferiority complex because my formal education is in computer science and not in astronomy. And so... I don't know what I'm supposed to know and not know. Like, I don't have any boundaries to what I should have learned in my astronomy degree program. My guess is, you know, I know a lot. Um, but it's one of these things that I, um, I've had to learn through reporting. So, so my job is to teach. My job is to explain the new research. And so by doing so, I learn. 
And so I, I'm running this gigantic simulation of all astronomical space exploration, planetary science, exoplanet cosmology in my mind. And I don't really know where it begins and where it ends and how it compares to what anybody else does. So it's a very peculiar experience. It's good fun, though. So when did you know it was succeeding? When, when did you know, Universe Today, that this was it? The, the idea had worked. It wasn't just a thing you thought you'd tried and it's going, ah, you know, it, it, this is actually, this is it. When did you taste success? I took about, man, I don't, I, has, I'm not sure we're there yet. Um, <laughs> you are there. Can confirm as outsider. Yeah, <laughs> you are um, very much over the line. Yeah, so I so I think you know there's various levels. I mean, for the first probably ten years, I did all the work myself. So so and I think within a couple of years, I was able to make a a, a living, a terrible, terrible living from it. Thanks That's to okay. the I'm a student. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand yeah. So, terrible livings. <laughs> yeah, so so you know, as long as you so I was able to do that, and that took a couple of years, and then I think. By around the 10 year mark, I was able to hire a person and that, you know, largely I was able to bring on Nancy Atkinson to do a bunch of writing with me. And she's such a pro and sort of raised the overall game. And so now I had somebody who I was almost kind of competing internally to write as well as she did. Mm. Um, and, and then as we then brought more people on. So I would say after about the 10 year mark, when I was able to actually start bringing on freelance work from other people. And pay them terribly. Um, I, you know, we we pay a lot better now, um, and so. But I don't think we're. I don't think we're there yet. I mean, I still look at the capabilities of a proper um, news organization, and we're we just don't have the the revenue or the traffic to be able to support that kind of an organization that to the level that I want that that I feel like I can do both the readers a service and the writers a service. And that I think is, you know, when I'm finally at the point where like, yeah, I'm paying people really well. We're producing really good content. It is it stands up to what anybody else could do, then I think I'll really feel like we've arrived. And so like, it's like maybe a 30 year journey to get there. <laughs> I mean, I feel like you're ticking two of those three boxes, you know, because it's a wonderful website. And as a source of knowledge, it's a beautiful place to kind of just immerse yourself and just meander through all of the different stories and things. So it's it's just the many we've got to sort out. And I feel like there's like adverts yeah. or, or something. I don't well, know. Cause just, this is what we have. We have well, no many from Awesome Astronomy. So we are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so you know what it is. Bad. <laughs> I even worked, I, w I worked for the XPRIZE for a couple of years uh, doing uh, product management for um, sort of an offshoot of their, of their company. And it was amazing. And I got to change the world and I got to work with an incredible team that I got to choose and I got paid well. And I was literally working for Peter Diamandis, you know, the developer of the XPRIZE. And I still, all I wanted to do was just get back and work on Universe today. So I'm broken at this point for any other career. <laughs> so you don't you don't look at other people's cars and, and some of the people your your ex colleagues and think and think oh, that could have been me. Yeah, it's funny. People um, even ask me what I think about other websites, and I just I don't even have an opinion. I'm just like I just don't go out of my bubble at all at this point. I mean, I feel like we've done enough free advertising for Elon, right? 
that I reckon you could probably <laughs> chuck us all a Tesla and yeah yeah it yeah, would just, be fine I would, I would just sell it and then buy freelance <laughs> articles from writers yeah I mean why not fair enough um I think actually this is probably a good point should we chuck some questions in that we've had through from Twitter sure shall we okay so they are I mean because Let's they're explore questions from Twitter. this simulation yeah. of all astronomy that I'm running in my head. Yeah, is I mean, because they're Twitter, they're completely like off the cuff and random. Yeah. Um, is, so I... you can you can choose. You can have dark energy. Sure. You can have the Arecibo damage. Sure. Or yep. you can have a Dyson sphere. Where do you want to begin? Uh, in in any order, you choose whichever one you think is most interesting. Okay, well, I'm pretty interested uh, in all of these, so this this doesn't help me either. But I think I'm going to go for the Arecibo damage. So we've had James Moore um, from Twitter who asks, um, impact of Arecibo damage on detecting, observing near-Earth objects, which is always interesting because we're always interested in near-Earth objects. Um, I think there was one that flew by yesterday or the day before, yeah. and it was like... Yeah, Paul was just telling me that, and I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, yeah, we were just talking about before the show. Um, yeah, and yeah, I think you found about an hour ago. Yeah, yeah. so we learned. Um, so for people who don't know, the Arecibo Observatory is this gigantic radio telescope that's located down in Puerto Rico, um, and of course, it was the one in con in the movie Contact. The, that great big uh, radio telescope in the in the jungle. It used to be the largest in the world. Now the uh, Chinese fast telescope is even mm -hmm. bigger. Um, but uh, we learn it's been the, the setting for a bunch of uh, movies and video games because it's such a cool. Uh, yeah, I yeah, I feel like know, it was place. in a James Bond film. It was, I yeah, I think, it, yeah, yeah, I think like yeah. GoldenEye or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is iconic. It, uh, you know, for, for a telescope that sees things that we can't see, it's one of the th things that people seem to recognize. They might not know what it's called. You show them a picture yeah. and you're like, oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah. I've seen that. So um, if you look at the telescope from afar, it looks like this big silver dish. But if you get up really close, what it really is, is just it's a it's a radio telescope of all of these sort of uh, interconnected circles and lines that form the shape of the dish. And about a week ago, one of the supporting cables that holds on to the receiver that hangs above the dish snapped and crashed mm. into the dish and oh, caused shocking. quite a bunch of, yeah, caused a lot of damage. Um, the pictures yeah. look pretty catastrophic, but apparently the damage isn't that bad. Um, and they're going to be down for a while. Um, I'm not sure how they can spin ripping a hole in the dish. Yeah, it's not you've just bad. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's like you can't use your dish bad, but not yeah. like it's time for a new dish bad. It's Yeah, that's, that's true. All. Yeah, it's time to repair the dish, not to go out and buy a new dish or just throw your hands up and look for new work. So, mm. um, but I, I mean, this is sort of part of the I mean you've got this telescope it's it went through a hurricane back in 2017 yeah. so it's experienced uh, this before I mean I think part of the problem is the Arecibo Observatory for the last few years has been in sort of uh, financial distress mm. I would say it has been I yeah it has been 
sort of losing funding, losing support, uh, and and so to then have what is going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars in in repair to try and get this cable reattached to rebuild all the support to repair all of the segments on the telescope that's 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 going to be tough at a time when they're already closing down various parts of the operation so i think from what everything that i've heard they're going to fix it and try to get operational yeah. as quickly as they can um but but I, you know, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised if it takes longer and is more misery to get the funding going to get this back operational. So that's the update yeah. on Arecibo. Um, and so until then, we can't use it to uh, search for near Earth objects. Although, I mean, Arecibo is like mainly used in radar operations. Mm. So as opposed to say, a, uh, like a an infrared telescope or a ra uh, or a radio telescope that's going to be observing these asteroids they do a lot of imaging where they'll they'll shoot a radar at the um at the asteroid and then map its shape with Arecibo and I know a lot of of asteroid researchers are going to miss losing that operation hmm. I just always have this image of it just going like pew pew <laughs> yeah. whatever it is it's a great big radio laser yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, well, here's my follow-up to that with the funding thing. We've been talking a lot recently about JWST, mm. yeah. uh, the yes. telescope-based yeah. yeah. astronomy. So, simple question, will it, won't it? Is it going to go up? Will it, won't it? When's it going to launch? Yeah, it's, it's um, October 2021, right? It's slated for now. Yeah, so that's will the it, latest date. It? It, yeah, it will, it will. I think at this point it will. Um, although, I mean, there's a great XKCD comic, I don't know if you've seen it, where, he, where uh, Randall Monroe looks at every time they predicted the date of the James Webb versus and then the date they made the announcement and the date they were predicting it was going to be made. And if you just met, did a line, you could actually calculate the exact moment that James Webb will launch and he's predicting 2026. Um, oh, God, they can't wait till 2026. They can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my understanding, um, like about a year and a half ago, uh, NASA did a very detailed assessment, project management assessment mm -hmm. on the status of James Webb. They talked to Northrop Grumman and went through line by line, item by item, where is everything on the development of James Webb? And that's when they set that original March 2021 deadline, deadline for when the telescope was going to launch. But um, they and they gave themselves six months of of sort of creep project creep in that time that they could the slack and and i talked to i did an interview with with one of the project managers on james webb uh about six months ago i feel and maybe it was longer um time has no meaning anymore yeah <laughs> uh, yeah um, yeah yeah and uh, and he was saying that that they had gone through about half of their slack at that point and you could just tell that they were gobbling up their slack. Yeah. And so they made the announcement just a couple of months ago that they, yeah, they're going to have to push back to the October 2021. And so now they've got more slack and the amount of slack that they need. But but every time you you work on these kinds of projects and you wrap up more of your to-do list and you understand, you start to truly understand how much work remains. And at this point, I mean, they've done full tests of the telescope. They've folded it out, folded it back in. Mm. They've at this point they're they're pretty much out of tests the next step is to put it in a in a container and ship it off to the um to french uh guinea, guinea 
French Guiana to do the uh, the launch on its uh, Ariane rocket uh, in October. So I think at this point, we're probably not going to see a lot of delays. The, the like NASA has some of the best software project management in the world. And when they went through the stat, the state of the project with a fine tooth comb NASA style, then you know, it was an you know, it's a pretty good understanding of where the project stood. And and that and that felt very reassuring to me. You know, a lot of NASA projects, it's funny, everyone places the blame on NASA. But when you look at NASA projects, like look at Perseverance off, it's on its way, mm. uh, on budget, on time. It was called the Mars 2020 rover. What's the date? It's 2020. There's been a global pandemic. Yeah. And still that rover is launching. Uh, the tests was done on time, on, a little under budget. I mean, there's so many projects that NASA knows how to do, and they know how to do it well. But there is a certain class of projects that that where they have to depend on an outside uh, contractor, uh, sometimes a military contractor, and that contractor has been defined by Congress, then problems start to happen. So I think if I, you know, if I had to pick, if I had to place my trust, it is always in NASA project managers, not necessarily in the the contractors that they that they have to use either choose to use or are forced to use. And there's another gigantic project that is currently undergoing happening with NASA right now that is following that exact same timeline. So same deal. Which project is this? Which is or SLS, SLS, Space yes. Launch System. Yeah. 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 Which we are super excited for. Good old Boeing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean it's just I mean it's just a it's a mystery what's going on there and and when it's actually going to come together and whether it's going to launch and even if it does launch how many of them are going to launch i mean it's uh it's a serious problem that somebody needs to just make a decision on and i've heard a really interesting proposal that for example um a falcon heavy could launch a crew dragon that's a little bit upscaled to mm. the moon and and with a lunar lander as a separate like send oh, one mission with the that just sends the crew dragon to the moon and have another one that sends the lander to the moon and then the two dock in lunar orbit yeah and then the or the then the, the they get into the lunar lander go down to the moon back up and then come back on a crew dragon and Ooh. crew dragon is um that is interesting because i have not heard about that yet yeah so a crew dragon has about 50 percent more interior space and weighs less than uh, an Apollo 11 command module. So it's, I mean, the, just the technology has come so far and it could, the whole thing could launch on a Falcon Heavy. You could do it for literally pennies on the dollar. You buy the, the blue the Blue Origin landing system, you fly with, a, with an upscaled Crew Dragon and you could definitely meet your 2024 deadline, but without SLS. Yeah, so and then, I mean- and then 2024 going to the moon i'm super excited about because i wasn't like alive for any of the apollo stuff <laughs> and it was like so far before my time as well do you know what i mean yeah. so it's it's like like to me i'm super ralph is like super jaded about all of this and stuff he's just like whatever going to yeah. the moon we've been to the moon why are we going back to the moon Where's yeah the yeah and um but yeah i'm super yeah, we've excited only been to a little bit of the moon it's like it's like asking a geologist you know would you be okay if you can look at six places on earth yeah 
It's like if you explored yeah. the garden, why do you yeah. need to go anywhere else? Yeah, yeah. A biologist, a biologist, you get to go, yeah, you get to go look at a garden. Yeah. You get to look at six gardens yeah. around planet Earth, and then that's all you get to look at. Yeah, yeah no, no, thank you. Yeah. That'd yeah, be an I'm interesting project excited. trying to pick six gardens that represent six the Earth. Six gardens, yeah, that represent the Earth, yeah. <laughs> There's probably a book in that. Yeah. So do you reckon 2024 is achievable? Yeah, so, so I, I think, I mean, it's weird to me that everybody is so hyper focused on 2024 like let's say it goes to 2026 that would be fine yeah let's say it's 2028 also fine um it perhaps doesn't meet somebody's presidential re-election campaign <laughs> but i think that that as long as i mean the 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 thing that that i think everybody complains about everyone's really sad about is just that it felt like during the Space Shuttle International Space Station period, human space exploration ground to a halt. And that's not true. I mean, we have a space station that's been permanently inhabited by an international crew of, of astronauts uh, continuously since the thing launched in 1999. Mm. So we've had more than 20 years of human beings floating in space above us continuously. Mm. Uh, learning a tremendous amount about long-term mm. habitation in space. There's value there. Yeah, it's a very but important a lot of people, step for long-term yeah. habitability. Yeah. In a in a vehicle that was constructed entirely in orbit mm. using in totally new uh, construction techniques. Again, it's the most complicated useful. machine that humanities have ever built. Uh, there's all kinds of things why it's great to have a space station. But... A lot of people think it's not enough, not enough. Mm. Like we should go farther. We Can should we go more, more higher. Like <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, and I get that too, totally get that. Um, and so, you know, my, I, a couple of years ago, I, I talked about this. There's a, there's a kind of idea that floats around NASA. It's called the capabilities driven approach. And so instead of figuring out a specific goal, you just, make everything harder every time. So you just say, in the classic example, if you think about back to the Gemini program where they they launched the two people on a rocket for the first time, and then they did a spacewalk for the first time, and then they tried docking in orbit for the first time. Mm -hmm. And so you could build this big long list, imagine like an achievements list in a video game where you just go sur survive for a longer period of time, uh, provide more, recycle more of your food, more of your water, um, go to a more interesting orbit, go to different targets. And so you can just continuously expand your capabilities across a wide array of, of technology and, and sort of achievements and grow our ability to explore the solar system bit by bit by bit. And so you're not, because the thing we don't want to do is just go back to, we're going to go to the moon, we're going to sit down on the moon, and then we're going to come home, and then we're never going to do that again, because yeah. it's stupid expensive. And then it'll be the same thing with Mars. We're going to go to, someone's going to, you know, I'm on Mars! Yeah, and then they flag. come home, and then they, hey, and then nobody ever does that again. And that's, that would be terrible. We yeah. need to keep going and just keep getting better and, and, and just make the capabilities just yeah. more and more advanced with every mission that you do. Definitely. I mean, we've talked a lot on Awesome Astronomy about using the moon as a training ground for Mars, you know, because we, we can't just go all the way to Mars and just step out for half an hour and go, woohoo, we're on Mars. Like that, that's yeah. not practical. And so 
Yeah. You can And unfortunately that's the orbit. The, there's kind of two the main orbit only gives you about a mo- a month on the surface of Mars before you have to come home. Hmm. Yeah. So when 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 will Mars happen, do you think? Uh well, so I mean there's two sort of directions it's going to go. One of course is Elon Musk with the Starship and and they were originally targeting 2024. Uh I don't think that's going to happen, but I don't think it's going to be I mean, I don't think the challenge is necessarily going to be building a spaceship big enough to take human beings to Mars. I think it's going to be the myriad details about keeping human beings alive yeah. to and from Mars. It's a so, long way and a long time. Uh, yeah, yeah. And and what if a person has appendicitis? What mm. if, where do you go to the bathroom? Like just the, the, the yeah. details from an engineering perspective just pile up. And so I think that we're going to see the capability to do it and then we're going to see that tested and tested and tested and tested here around earth for probably a decade before uh i think so i think we're going to be in the 2030s mm-hmm. probably near the end of the 2030s before we see a human being set foot on mars and i wouldn't be surprised if it's the chinese oh yeah. do you reckon yeah mm. see i think elon musk will just be elon musk and he will he will go to mars even if it's a case of stepping outside for half an hour and going, woo, we made it to Mars, and then turning back and, and, and sort of, you know, heading back. Um, I Yeah, think- but you just described a bunch of things, a, yeah. a ability to build fuel locally on the surface of Mars, mm. the ability to deploy f- from Mars, go on a return mission, the ability to keep human beings alive for, for the... Th- four or five months it's going to take to get to Mars. I mean, there's a pile of on a vehicle designed to carry a hundred people. So there's just, there's just a gigantic laundry list and like more power to them. Like, I love that it's a race, that it's NASA, Mm. that it's the Chinese and that it's, and that it's SpaceX. My guess is, I mean, the realistic answer I think is it's going to be a cooperative mission between China and, and NASA and ESA that will be flying with a combination of SpaceX and other hardware will actually be the first astronauts to set foot on Mars and then come back. It's really interesting actually doing a, a combination of things, you know, getting those people yeah. to work together is a really interesting idea. I mean, that's the International Space Station. We've seen this work before. So what's been your favorite mission over the last well, 20 years of, of universe today. That you, what, What's been that, that kind of highlight mission? Well, my, I mean, the missions that I'm most excited about are the ones that haven't launched yet. Um, and so the kinds of things that I'm really excited about right now, of course, James Webb, of course, um, uh, I'm really excited about the Vera Rubin uh, as a mm. totally new way of observing the night sky. Um, the the Nancy Grace uh, Roman telescope, the um, uh, so a lot of upcoming stuff I'm really excited about. I'm excited about Mars sample return as Mm -hmm. a connection to what's happening with with Perseverance and the uh, the Europeans uh, upcoming uh, rover. So I mean, they just they just go on and on and on with the, what I'm excited about. The extremely large telescope in 2026 is going to be incredible. Um, it's going to be able to view terrestrial planets orbiting other stars from the ground uh, at a fraction of the price, at one-tenth the price of uh, mm-hmm. of James Webb. <laughs> oh, the irony so, of them 
if they launch yeah, in that 2026 like that ex- yeah the ct predicts oh well the irony of course is the that when they originally developed the extremely large telescope uh the european southern observatory they had a plan for this thing called the overwhelmingly large telescope yeah. and that would be a a 100 meter telescope and then they looked at the price tag of a billion dollars and went like no that's too much money to spend <laughs> on a telescope we can't you know we can't we can't build the largest theoretical telescope possible that's just it's too expensive yeah at a billion dollars and here we are yeah <laughs> and here we are yeah yeah you can buy 10 of them <laughs> <laughs> so, um, as you, the telescope that yeah, the telescope that did astronomy is exactly right. So I, I mean, I've I was really excited for New Horizons to see Pluto for the first time. Mm-hmm. I was always, you know, when I started, Cassini was still on its way to Saturn. That uh, was yeah, incredibly yeah. exciting. Curiosity to have this nuclear powered rover roaming mm-hmm. around on the surface of of Mars. So. Um, People are always so impatient about the future stuff, but there's so many great things happening all the time, just in like exoplanets. I mean, we've got the aerial telescope going up. We've we've had Crow. We've got various Earth-based telescopes. I think if I had to pick one observatory that I'm most uh, looking forward to more results, it's probably Gaia. I would say Mm. Gaia is is the observatory that I'm so excited to see every gigantic announcement that comes out of that because they just you know they're observing billions of stars all at the same time they're tracking planets they're they're discovering white dwarfs binary systems black holes all kinds of stuff they're mapping out just the structure of the galaxy in a way that we've never seen before and each update is just like I don't know, it just feels like data gold just raining from mm. the sky. I feel like every time they release an update, they're almost like lifting this veil that has been obscuring our view yeah. of like our yeah. galaxy in particular. They just kind of like, you just wipe the window clean a little bit yeah. more and we well, see all that detail. Yeah, that next one will probably contain, for example, uh, tens of thousands of suspected exoplanets. Like they're going to... Yeah instantaneously suggest stars that are containing exoplanets that's going to make Kepler look like, you know, one-tenth. It's going to be an order of magnitude. Potentially, Mm. like, tens of thousands, maybe even 100,000-plus exoplanets from a telescope that that's its side job. Yeah. Yeah. So, Gaia for the win. By the way, I found all these exoplanets. I'm just going to get back to the real (laughs) work now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They're over over there. Yeah. I was... uh, um, I talked to the, the guys who made the CCDs for that um, back in uh, back at Farnborough a couple of years ago, and they are the most modest guys in the world. And they just they just made this fabulous thing, and they they just go, yeah, it, it's pretty good. It, it's gonna it's gonna it's do right. well. And <laughs> yeah. it's like, yeah, you've, you've right. made the most yeah. awesome telescope. They're like your, your yeah. equipment's doing all this amazing stuff. It's like, yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah. It's good. He's like, have you yeah. seen my new one? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, yes, please. Let's put that in a telescope. Yeah, yeah I actually, I I started. I've got sort of like a half written episode on like a follow on mission to Gaia. Because mm. astrometry is such a fascinating, such yeah. a rich vein to mine. And so I think that we're going to see uh, a ton. Like, like astrometry is going to give a 10x in just the discovery of exoplanets. And it can probably give 100x with a with a with that that other CCD mm. um, once it gets put into a spacecraft at a reasonable price. 
and because it's it's finding the ones that are orbiting face on it's not mm. having to find the ones that are perfectly lined up mm. so it's really it's complimentary <laughs> it's well it just it sees them in every angle yeah. as opposed mm. to only seeing the ones that are that are perfectly lined up to us so it's just a perfect complement to the other methods and then it matches up nicely with the direct imaging so you you can just turn one of these gigantic ground telescopes on this star that is forming a little circle in yeah. the sky and just image its planets so which i adore i love all the gifts oh. that you get with like direct yeah. image yeah. planets oh i just i love a gift yeah. and i can't get over so, the ones of actual planets yeah and so and so i think partly i feel a bit like because i i have my nose in the papers because i've seen the stuff that's coming up I, it's like I've got this sneak peek. I've got this spoiler on the, what the future holds. And the future holds is these incredible missions capable of finding planets. And then things like James Webb and the Extremely Large Telescope and whatever comes after that capable of imaging them. And then the next generation after that with Habex and Louvoir mm. and origins. I mean, there's mm. just going to be these incredible observatories that are going to answer these fundamental questions about the universe. Uh, and like, if you think we're in a golden age now, like we're just getting started. Yeah. We're on Do the, you think the we're going to have an answer to that, that life question soon? Ooh, that question. Oh, the question, like, are, is, question. are we alone? Mm. Yeah. I mean, we will have the capability that if life is nearby, then, then and it is making a some kind of biosignature in the atmosphere of the planet, then we will have the capability to discover it. Mm. So um, I think it's obviously one of the most fundamental and deep questions that we can possibly ask. And I think that that we should be doing everything we can to get to the answer because as Arthur C. Clarke said, either uh, either possibility is equally terrifying. You know, mm. Either we're alone in the universe or we're not. Yeah. And uh, both are, are terrifying. So um, I think that I'm, I, I can't understand that, that governments aren't willing to throw just all the money they have to answer this question because it is <laughs> now literally a scientific question that we can get the answer to. Yeah, I'm super excited to see what aerial yeah. and, and those sorts of characterizing yeah. telescopes uh, there's a, will show. Uh, there's a really interesting um, quote that I got from one of the developers of the Louvoir telescope. This is the one that's going to come after the telescope that comes after the telescope that comes after the James Webb. <laughs> um, you know, it'll be, in theory, it'll be a 16 to 20 meter space telescope. Oh, my God. Um, It'll really be the true successor to Hubble. It'll be a it'll be a visible infrared ultraviolet telescope, and with Louvoir, it will be capable of observing the atmospheres of planets to such a distance that they will essentially be able to then estimate with about ninety five degree accuracy whether or not we are alone in the universe. See, that is a so, question you want to be alive to that, hear the answer to, right? Yeah, you want to hear the answer. So you turn Louvoir, you perform a survey of every world that Louvoir can get its detectors on. And if you don't find life on any of those worlds, then we are probably mm. the only life in the universe. Which I think is scarier than not being alone. It's way scarier. Yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah to be alone is way scarier. Yeah. Because then the responsibility is on us to do something about it. Like imagine that if life formed in this one place in the entire universe, and that's the only time that it ever did, and then, it, and then humanity formed, 
and then what humanity did was screwed it all up <laughs> and then and then and then the sun expanded as a red giant and destroyed all life in the solar system and then the universe just went back to being dead and it never figured out anything better than that and it was yeah. our fault and right now the working assessment has got to be that it's our responsibility like until we get some kind of confirmation like yeah we receive a signal from the from the uh aliens at alpha centauri <laughs> and they're like don't worry we got it and we're like <laughs> all right you know yeah. let's like, we just, can go back to poking things get, with a stick yeah yeah, yeah let's just get yeah. stupid again you know it's yeah, not our problem <laughs> the hydrocarbon nuke apocalypse let's bring it on <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> So, so we and and that's the trajectory that we're that we're on right now, unless we get our act together mm -hmm. and not the we are not behaving like possibly the stewards of life mm. in the universe. Yeah, and I, I think that for I think oh, that ahead. life is inevitable. I think that there will be life elsewhere, but whether it's beyond anything more than sort of single celled, maybe you know microbes, that kind of yeah. gaff. Um, that's to me. The question is whether there's anything advanced because I think we'll find life in our solar system, whether that's because it's spread from Earth or whether right, it, yeah. it came from somewhere else and that's how life started on Earth. I think there'll yeah. be bacterial life or evidence of past bacterial life somewhere in our solar system. But Yeah, I'm more pessimistic than you, actually. <laughs> I'm I think we're alone. I really do. Do you really think that we're, we're yeah. completely alone? I yeah. Maybe it's because I'm Welsh and we're perpetually jolly because we live somewhere that rains 90% of the time, so we have to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That sounds like the West Coast of Canada too. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I find the Fermi paradox such a compelling idea. Mm. Um, and I don't find any answer to it to be satisfying. So... Uh, you know, I'm sure you've talked about it many times on the, on the channel, but, um, you know, the universe is big and old and life got started here on Earth the moment that it could. And yet we see no evidence of anyone anywhere. And not just like we don't hear their signals, not just that we don't point our telescopes, but that we don't see anyone exploring, sending probes out into the, into the Milky Way. And, and in theory, a, sufficiently advanced civilization should be able to drop a monolith on every moon in the entire Milky Way in about 10 million years. Even behaving, you know, even following the laws of physics, we understand them. And yet we see no monolith on the moon. And we've observed the moon close enough to see a monolith. So uh, that means that nobody got to the solar system. And if nobody got to the solar system, that's weird. So no, I, I, and even, even this argument about like, well, sure, simple life is everywhere, but complex life is not, but, but we see simple life doing very complex behaviors. We see ants forming a colony and acting like a superorganism. We see gnats of algae that behave in ways that make them act like a larger organism. So it doesn't seem possible to me that, that even single cellular organism organisms should come up with a trick that is similar to what we've been able to pull off as a multicellular organism, as an animal. So, so it really feels to me like we're, that they would be here if we weren't alone. Therefore, we're alone. Therefore, it's our responsibility and to not wreck the planet. But then just to counteract so, that slightly, I mean, we're only ooh. visible, I would argue, 
with so your sort of advanced and I say advanced very loosely, advanced yeah. civilization within a sort of 60, 70 light year radius, right? In the sense of no. we've, we've got radio, we've been blasting radio waves out into space mm -mm. for about 60 or 70 no years. Uh-uh. No, we have been, we, so life itself, uh, cyanobacteria gave us up 500 million years ago. So when cyanobacteria started to fill the, the atmosphere with unreasonable amounts of oxygen, that was a clear signal to anyone within now 500 million light years of planet Earth that there is some kind of life that is continuing to maintain our atmosphere. So it's not about us sending out an intelligent signal. It's just about the, the signal of life itself. And so Earth is blasting out biosignatures of every flavor and most recently the techno signatures our radio emissions are the signals of of chlorofluorocarbons and air pollution for the last say few hundred years but life itself has has permanently changed the signature of planet earth for half a billion years and that would have been visible to anyone with a powerful enough telescope within within that radius but yeah then i guess that's the assumption is are we have they got the most you know the powerful enough telescope have they decided to leave telescopes behind and instead adventure out and that's where they're focusing their energy and so have they skipped over us is there something well, in their kind of doctrine for what life requires that says our solar system is crap for life you know we, well, we have these definitions yeah, it all depends. I mean, you can you can always make that argument about an example, like what if they just decide to retreat into the simulation and they just live in a virtual world? Or what if they decide that they want to spend their time just focusing on making themselves better, better aliens? And, 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 you know, what if they have no interest in exploring? That's fine. All it takes is one. It just takes mm -hmm. one to to explore the entire Milky Way and let the rest of those boring virtual world um, peaceniks uh, just spend time <laughs> you know, meditating <laughs> on their Game Boys while this one civilization goes and, and sends a, a self-replicating robot probe to every single star in the entire Milky Way. So, so you can always provide examples like, but what if, and then you have to always counter that with, but, but all it takes is one, just one. Yeah. Um, and the, the example that I always give is, is, you know, you take a sandwich and you put it and you leave it out and you, you drop one little molecule of yeast on it or mold in one corner, you come back a week later and, and what do you know? The whole sandwich is now mold and it doesn't matter where you start. It's always mold <laughs> in the end. <laughs> so, so if you imagine the galaxy as a sandwich. <laughs> and any intelligent civilization is mold um in the end it'll be it'll be mold everywhere and 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 the count and so you're like yeah but what if they don't then that means that we will never that's that's the the if if nobody ever does then we will never so if nobody ever has ever explored the entire milky way then there is some fundamental reason why we as a civilization will never be able to go anywhere else than our solar system and await the death of our sun <laughs> which is of course kind of sad you know mm. and you can't have it both ways either we can do it and they can do it or we can't do it and they couldn't do it yeah well basically Pick. civilization always ends up destroying itself 
So even if it yeah, does exist. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Nobody makes it through. Yeah. Everybody always wipes themselves out. Yeah. No matter how well we try to, to prepare, we yeah. are doomed. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I like the we're alone. That is like the <laughs> happiest possible outcome for this problem. Is we that don't we're have alone. to worry about anything. We don't have to worry. We're not doomed. Just nobody did it because there's yeah. nobody else. <laughs> the, the downside is it's our responsibility. And so we have to stop wrecking the planet and give ourselves a chance to do this. So I think this brings us nicely on to um, another question that we've had from Twitter because it's talking about, you know, life elsewhere. And we've got a, a tweet from Sahil Haradas who says, what are some of the obstacles involved with building a Dyson Sphere? Why can't we start we now? We already have. We've already begun building our Dyson Swarm. Um, when you look at, for example, um, some of the space telescopes that we have orbiting around the sun right now, they are harvesting solar power that would have just gone off into space and they're harvesting them for their various purposes. They're using them to uh, point at various astronomical objects. So we have already begun the development of our Dyson Swarm. And, and it will take however long it takes as we continue to harvest more and more of the energy that's coming from the sun for whatever purposes we can envision. And the reason we have not built a bigger Dyson swarm today is because there's no, it doesn't make sense economically because we haven't covered earth itself in the kinds of solar panels it'll take to mm. live the lifestyle that we want. And eventually we'll get to a point where earth isn't enough and we'll start to build power off earth. But we probably won't see any kind of Dyson swarm start until we are utilizing as much power as we can just here on Earth itself. Like a lot of people are really excited about this idea of space power. Yeah. And they always want me to talk about it. I'm like, there is no economic financial reason why you would ever build your power off of planet Earth. It's cr yeah. in the in the within the next few hundred years. Like it would be a kind of we're forced to go into space. Yeah, you've just run out of room. You've run out of places to put, you've mm. run out of room to put solar panels and you still want more power. Um, because like right now, solar panel prices are coming down to just a little over, what, like a dollar fifty per watt installed. Like it's ludicrously inexpensive mm. to get solar power installed. There's no other method of power production that compares to solar power. So there's plenty of space where we could put solar panels. And when you look about launching the stuff into space, there's no, no, nothing makes economical sense unless you have a space telescope and you need to provide power to that space telescope. Well, that makes a ton of sense. And so that is, that's how you get a Dyson swarm. One satellite at a time. Or you have a whole fleet of satellites like Starlink. And instead <laughs> of internet, you just beam down all the energy. And that but even that will be... Yeah, but that that still will not be economical compared mm. to just putting a solar panel on a roof just for the longest time. Yeah. It just when you consider just the amount of energy cost to take a kilogram of solar panel and put it in space, mm. the benefits of having a solar panel in space do not outweigh those costs. They are orders of magnitude away oh, from yeah. one another. And so it really won't be until we've just run out of places to put them here on Earth. That's when we start doing space power which i think will take so, a long time because there's a lot of earth which is devoid of 
stuff of yeah. people of yeah. plants yeah. because it's it's just in inhospitable to life you know i mean at large swathes of our yep. planet are desert you can although exponential growth curves do have a way of sneaking up on you as we've seen mm. with uh the spread of certain uh pandemics <laughs> <laughs> not to name so, any specifically not to name any of the, in case someone's going to try to broadcast something on youtube yeah, yeah. we <laughs> mentioned mentioned starlink there do you have an opinion I do. People don't like my opinion, um, Ooh, which is that, uh, yeah, it's controversial, which is like, for one, it's inevitable that we're going to have some kind of space-based satellite system that right now on planet Earth, half of humanity does not have high-speed access to the internet. And, and there is a growing gap between the rich and the poor, mm. and it mm -hmm. largely has to do with your ability to access the internet. If you can, if you can access the internet, then you can participate in the modern society. You, as a farmer, you can buy and sell goods on a global marketplace. You can access education to mm. learn more, to enrich yourself. Like the internet is, is everything. And to not have access to the internet now is an enormous disadvantage. And so, to so so getting everybody access to the internet it should be an enormous priority for for every um well-meaning government out there and they and i don't know what it's like where you guys live but in our part of the world it is not a high priority that my parents have been on a waiting list for good internet for 20 years now i mean right? i did drop um, out about halfway in this recording yeah. because it, yeah. it started raining <laughs> yeah. quite heavily and so the wi-fi went mm, nope and so yeah. i'm now kind of hot spotting off my phone um, oh good yeah and this is you know this is okay you've got options yeah 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 and so there are 10 million cell phone towers around the earth right now to provide people with the level of mobile access that we have cell phone towers kill tens of millions of birds, tens of millions. So um, you have to dig up tunnels to play fiber optic cable through sensitive environments, through uh, you have to lay underwater cables through marine habitats, sensitive marine habitats. I mean, so assuming that that people agree that that we have to connect the rest of humanity with internet, then the question is by what means and it's going to be it's not going to be 10 more million cell towers to get them online it's going to be an order of magnitude because they are scattered around mm. in more rural areas mm. so um and so satellite is the one that makes it possible that you have these satellites flying overhead that are broadcasting high-speed internet we're already seeing now people are getting say uh, 60 to 100 megabit download speeds from Starlink with fairly good ping times. So like you could play a competitive video game on this. Mm. Um, th this is the way that you connect the rest of humanity to the internet. The price we pay is we're going to have a degradation of our, our ability to do astronomy, space science, and of course, just our ability to see an unblemished night sky. Um, and this is the price of progress. And so if Starlink is used to allow banks to knock a few seconds off of their trade speeds and make and let rich people make mm. boatloads more money, then I think it's a then I think it's a travesty. It should be privatized. It should be 
properly used to connect the rest of humanity to the internet. And the and and then yes, the price then then the loss of the skies, the degradation of the skies is the price I'd be willing to pay for the for humanity to be connected. But if if proper competition gets us going, they do everything they can to make these satellites as dark as they can, mm. um, then then I think that we will have this acceptable compromise. So so that's that's kind of where I stand, which is like we need internet. Yeah. I mean, you say that it's controversial, but I think you're on a similar kind of vein as we are on awesome astronomy. You know, we we say that how how can you deny the emancipation of millions of people around the world? Yeah. You know. Right. But, you know, yeah. our issue is always they are far brighter than they need to be. There should have been yes. more work before they were launched to find out how bright they were going to be and how much impact they were going to have, and that's the beef I, that we have. I think it's more than that. I think it's I think it's the price, it's the availability, the accessibility. Like if that's the promise, then that should have been put in writing in a contract, and they should have been forced to like before Starlink launched, SpaceX should have agreed that. The, what the price point would be for internet, yeah. the level of, of accessibility that they would be providing to mm -hmm. humanity. Because right now, it's up to them to run it as a business and make yes. as much money as they can. And, and know, that is, it's supposed that's to be unacceptable. It's free internet and it's like nothing is free. There will be a No, catch. it's not going to be free. It's going to be, it's going to be whatever. It's going to be 50 bucks. It's going to be a hundred bucks. It's going to yeah. be whatever. It's going to be a thousand dollars. We don't know what the price is going to yeah. be. And even and if so, the price is, is, you know, $50 a month or whatever, the people who need the internet are not going to be able to afford it because that's, you know, going to be for yeah. some people, it's the same price as what exists there now. And it's like, even if it can reach those areas that, that need the internet yeah. in order to sort of grow and improve their knowledge. Yeah. If they can't afford yeah. it, there's no point at reaching yeah. these areas. Yeah. And so, and so I really think that, that, that knowing that that benefit is out there for humanity, that they should have negotiated that before they launch these things. Yeah. And then we, as the stakeholders can accept the downside. The downside is I'm going to have to pull Starlink pictures, Starlink trails out of my f astrophotography. The downside is astronomers are going to have are going to do less science because yeah. these things are are passing directly through the galaxy that they're studying. Yeah. But the upside is as you say, the emancipation of humanity. We are connecting another f 3 billion people to this global consciousness which is of almost limitless value so i wish that they had they had held starlink's feet to the fire i hope they hold amazon's feet to the mm. fire and i and i still think they can and should that's kind of where i stand so yeah it's not maybe it's not that controversial but i think a lot of people say you know they get really mad at me when when they're so mad that that these starlinks are passing through their astrophotography yeah and and i'm like well what this is hopefully going to help people be educated yeah and they're like wait well, it's not really going to be happen okay so so here's so this is the argument is that we don't trust spacex and that i can agree about is that <laughs> that should have been negotiated in advance yeah i mean i think they get angry because nobody knew how bright it was and i think that's where the anger comes from is that nobody was sure how bright these satellites were going to be nobody knew um there, and i think there definitely could have been improvements done um you know, in terms of their their brightness and things like that, um, but, but it's also even learning if they were brighter. Elon is improving them. 
Yeah, what if it was just this bright train of stars that created this grid across the entire sky that was always visible? Yeah, it, and it was yeah. as bright as the International Space Station at all times. Mm -hmm. And yet, the price we paid was everybody on Earth got access to the internet. Mm, Would we be willing to pay one. that price? So I, I think, you know, everyone has to make that decision for themselves. But I think you've got to, you've got to weigh your options about are you going to build all those cell phone towers? Are you going to lay that cable? Are you going to, are you going to dig up yeah. those, those fiber optic mm. uh, pipelines? I mean, so um, history um, has shown us, you know, that hum humanity has this sort of innate ability that whenever we make progress, we destroy stuff in the process yeah. and you know yeah. we've destroyed the oceans we've destroyed the rainforest and now we're destroying the night sky and hopefully Next space itself yeah i mean it's like <laughs> hopefully it won't be destroyed in such yeah uh you know an unrecoverable way as as a lot of our natural resources have been um but yeah it's like can can you justify the destruction to a certain extent but there has to be a line good question yeah. And so right now, fortunately, starlinks are only visible at at high at high latitudes. Um, exactly. And they're not visible with the. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Uh, but they're, you know, only when they're they're raising altitude, they're not mm. they're only visible with the unaided eye until they've reached their final altitude. Um, and then they're essentially invisible to 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 the unaided eye. So for most people, 99.999% of people who go outside and look up, they won't see a single Starlink. Until they flare, only, which I discovered the other night, that they flare. Uh, well, they, they, they flare when they're going up. I don't know if they flare once they're in their final uh, altitude. Yeah, because I mean, I saw the flaring and it completely threw me off because I was not expecting it at all and i was were they, sort of were they in a train like yes, were you seeing them yeah, all together so yeah so, been, so they will flare when they're when they're repositioning themselves yeah they must have been reasonably launched yeah. they weren't quite in a line but they were you know yeah. several of them moving in the same direction one after the other so yeah. they must have been a reasonably recent launch but yeah completely yeah. threw me when they were flaring so, yeah did not this, expect it. this then, happened this happens every time in awesome. Like, we say the word Starlink, and then a massive conversation goes on for the next <laughs> twenty yeah. minutes. It is, it is, yeah, the, yeah. it is the controversial subject of yes. astronomy yeah. at the moment, isn't it? It really. So is. we can all agree they should have forced these satellite providers mm. to to commit to yeah. the benefits before letting them launch. Absolutely, yeah. and Very there should have been so. more transparency with how much damage they were going to do to the night sky. I think that we could have predicted. Come on. I mean, don't you see satellites going overhead? I do. All, all night. The time. Yeah. All the time. And I know yeah. what you know, I know what a satellite looks like. Yeah. That's, so now imagine fourteen thousand. You just just multiply I think that that's the thing you see. That it's the <laughs> yeah. sheer Every... numbers. It, it's yeah. suddenly being like, Oh, I'm not I'm not gonna be observing and then suddenly be like, Oh, yeah. look at that, it's a satellite. It's now gonna be, Oh, look, yeah. there's a star. <laughs> yeah. And so it is like, in practical purposes, it's a nine times increase in in light pollution for astronomers from satellites. So mm. the number mm. of, of objects that this puts through their field of view that is, is you know, in terms of how much damage they do, it's about a nine times from mm. the total amount of satellites that they were having to deal with before. Mm. And this is just the first provider. Then comes, oh, yeah. then comes Amazon. And then comes whatever China puts up. 
right? Yeah. They're going to do their own, and then Russia's going to do their own. Maybe every space-capable civilization, as they watch the the fact, the money factory that SpaceX is going to be creating, mm-hmm. it's going to want a piece of that action. You know, mm. think about Star Trek. When you think about like the Starbase Seventeen floating above planet Earth. Like, think about an eyesore that would have been. All these ships <laughs> coming and going. Yeah. Is that actually. the science fiction future you wanted? Oh, but no. then if we've got, you know, all these ships going back and forth like that, we can definitely manage lots more space telescopes. Well, to be, to be yeah. fair, to be fair, you'd be out of a job, Jenny, because if we could go and visit the stars and actually go to the planets themselves, who would need a telescope? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's all, it's all redundant. And I think that brings us so, full circle. Well... Yeah, I was going to say the 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 telescope. You've got a you got a, it's a solar scope sitting behind you there. No, no, it's a it's a refractor. Oh, it's a refractor. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually yeah. the, the white the white with the rings. What is your favorite object to look at in the sky? Uh so planetary, it's got to be Saturn. Like Saturn is the one Classic. that that yeah. When I show people Saturn in the telescope, it just blows their mind. Mm. They cannot believe that they're you know. I'm sure you had this too. Where people is this real? Is this just like a picture? Yeah. And they're like, no, no, it's real. This is what it. Re- I didn't think it would really look like that. What did you think it would look like? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen pictures. Yeah, that's the thing. So, so Saturn is is the greatest from a sort of like a deep sky object. I sort of oscillate. I love the uh, probably the the great globular cluster in Hercules M13 just oh, it just yes. is such a beautiful object it you know looks like this tight little packed ball of stars in a small telescope you can start to resolve and make out what's inside of it it's wonderful and your imagination helps you take it to the next level and you can see it with a pair of binoculars you can see it with a telescope it's it's bright it shows up early in the evening. It's very dependable. Um, and then from a like an astrophotography side, I really love the Rosette Nebula. I think it's my mm. favorite mm. object. Very, you know, you can do like a long exposure, multiple wavelengths. Um, it's just so pretty. I love it. Yeah, you can see like little uh, star forming um, uh, pillars inside of it, like the pillars of yeah. creation, but at like a like mm. at a much bigger scale. Like the thing is. Yeah. The Eagle Nebula is actually just this tiny little, yes. very bright nebula, but the but the Rosette is just is gigantic. Huge. It just barely fits. I don't know. I feel like the Rosette is like as big as it needs to be. Like it just fits within your telescope. Yeah. You've got a nice wide field telescope. It's just this beautiful, you know, uses up all the pixels that you're bringing to bear on it all yeah. at the same time. So it's a it's a wonderful object. And definitely so the your, more your... you stare, the more that you see. Yeah, there's more, yeah. Yeah, there's more in there, yeah. Mm. What would be your top tip for someone just starting out there in astronomy? In like amateur astronomy or yeah. just trying to understand yeah. astronomy itself? In amateur uh, astronomy. Well, both, I suppose. It just, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, from an amateur astronomy standpoint, I mean, I think that a lot of people, they get really excited about this idea. They get into space. They want to see, they see Saturn for the first time through a telescope. They get really excited about it. And I think the thing that's really important to understand is there's actually a really short list of things that you can enjoy with a small telescope. Um, and so generally, I recommend going for like a really cheap light bucket. Get like a Dobsonian, mm. like a six inch mm. or an eight inch Dobsonian, something that's really simple that you see some bright object in the sky and you're like, I wonder what that is. And then you point your telescope at it and you're like, oh, it's Jupiter. Yeah. Um, and because really like... If you get a telescope, you can see Jupiter, Saturn, the moon. That's pretty much it. Um, 
And yeah, you can see Venus looks like a little bit of a crescent. And when Mars, every couple of years, gets a little closer, you can see the, you can it's see like it's a round. reddish ball. Yeah. You can see that it's round. Mm. Um, maybe you can see the polar ice caps if you really sort of imagine carefully, like Percival Lowell. Um, <laughs> but it, but then. To take things to the next level, you want to shift to astrophotography. Astrophotography is is that's when you see tens of thousands of objects. So, so, so I really try to talk people away from the fancier telescopes, like the one that I have behind me, <laughs> which is collecting dust, <laughs> right? Because I use an astrophotography setup that's thousands of kilometers away, sitting, you know, in front of my computer, um, because it's just so so go simple just really simple and then if you're out there and you're using the telescope mm -hmm. and you're pushing it to the limits and you're seeing you are finding other things you know maybe there's a couple of hundred things that you can look at but like galaxies are out nebulae are out you've got star clusters and the bright planets and that's double kind stars. of it with a telescope double stars are great sure yeah. yeah i'll give you double stars and and interesting stars like nice reddish stars or really mm -hmm. nice blue stars mm -hmm. are really nice um, but apart from that, there's just um, astrophotography is is the promised land. That's <laughs> when you can that's when you can take that's when you can finally have reality match your imagination of what space is supposed to look at look like. And so a lot of people will buy a a telescope right in between something that has a nice tracking mount, but it isn't a very good telescope and it's really cranky to try to do astrophotography with it mm. and it just doesn't get them what they want so start with the dobsonian just they're cheap they're fast they're easy to use and you will just be stunned at the things that you can see and if you're just and then later on go that go the astrophotography route if you are still hooked but it's a you know it's a whole other rabbit hole paul does you sketch which I, I I'm a sketcher. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I, Ast Astro sketchography. Yeah. yeah. It's ten inch ten inch dob and a pencil. Um yeah. and John John is uh, is is in the background. Um yeah. and he's um he's got a sixteen inch dob he built himself. Oh wow. I, is, I really I talk people away from those sixteen inch those big bigger dobs, even a ten inch dob. I would never recommend anybody get a ten inch dob. No. I barely I mean eight inch dob is the limit because that's big enough to put that's the one that you can put in your car yeah um the and just like yeah it's a little better but you're not gonna see that i was i was looking through a 22 inch daub um wow where <laughs> you know you you climb up on a ladder we have to climb up look, on a ladder for john's yeah, for Bob's yeah, <laughs> yeah you climb up on a ladder and you look through and through that in in i was in like uh, the darkest possible skies. I forget which way it goes. Bortle one. Anyway, like just like really dark mm -hmm. skies. And I could see the nebulosity in the middle of the ring nebula. I could see the greeny hint yeah. of the in between the ring nebula. Or you, you take a, you know, you take a 70 millimeter refractor, you put a crappy camera on it and you take a picture and you've got a beautiful shot of the ring nebula. Mm. And so it's just, it's just like, again, you look in, you look at Andromeda through a tel through 22 inch tel and it, it just looks like a fuzzy bit, like a big fuzzy we are not Blur a there. fan of observing. <laughs> no, you look at a, you look at a, you look at the Whirlpool Nebula, and you just see a fuzzy mm. area. 
through the biggest possible visual observing instrument you can get your hands on. It's only when you take pictures do these things really come alive and and it's just bigger is not better mm. until you until you hit um, astrophotography. And then it's long, you know, then it's about time, how much time, how yeah. patience is what pays off, not um, the size of the telescope. I think with um, observing, though, you know, I feel like for the casual observer, being able to sort of just see something with your own eyes, it has that magic about it because, you know, you can you mm -hmm. can Google mm. like, oh, I want to see pictures of Jupiter and you'll see far more detail than you'll ever see in your back garden with a little telescope. But there is just something special about being able to witness the universe mm -hmm. with your own yep. light detectors sitting in your head. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I call them your meat cameras. <laughs> I really like that meat cameras. Yeah, meat cameras. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got like maybe a ten-second. You know, they'll collect for about ten seconds before they start dumping the photons out. Mm. Mm. So I think grand. We'll wrap it That's... up there. We didn't hit any of your questions. Do you want to do a lightning round? Do you want to do a lightning round? Come on, I feel bad. You ask people to give you questions. Should we do a lightning round? Go yeah. for it. Let's let's do it. Yeah. At the top. All right. First, guys, we've got Bird Christiansen. And I apologize if I've said that wrong, but um, they ask, common sense tells me that supposed accelerating expansion of the universe is to observational error, misinterpretation of the data or other effects due to diffuse intergalactic material. I think dark energy is bunk. What's your take right. on dark energy? Um, yeah, so I mean, you get this this sort of knee jerk reaction from people. They're just like, oh, you know, I don't get it. And I don't like it. Um, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, that's right. it. End of story. I'm yeah, going down and, the path. And the reality is, is that that if you sit down and you take the time to understand the enormous amount of work and the careful story that has gone up to 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 understand that both dark matter and dark energy are things, um, then you'll have a deep appreciation. And so generally, when people say that, I mean, they're either um, mostly they just haven't taken the time to understand the story so far. So they're being lazy. They're kind of going like, I don't get it. What's the thing? I don't like it. Right. And they're just walking away. <laughs> like, Whoa, tell you what, why don't you follow <laughs> the trail of observations that have made so far? I mean, just like just the like dark matter, for example, the fact that stars orbit at 220 kilometers per second close into the heart of the Milky Way. And they also orbit at 220 mm -hmm. kilometers per second far out in the Milky Way. That is not what you would expect if there was no such thing as dark matter. Therefore, there is a thing. Yep. What is it? Don't know. It's a mystery. That's what mysteries are. And that's Stay tuned <laughs> as people figure this out. Yeah. And yeah, you know, mysteries are unsettling. And and yet you can't if if you feel like you've made better observations than than the thousands of astronomers who have who have you know mapped it out so far, then there's a Nobel Prize waiting for you too. I think that's the thing, is that you know, people have a fear of the unknown. Yeah. But science is all about discovering the unknown and pushing those boundaries. And so we happen to be in the middle of a mystery. There's other mysteries that have already unfolded, but we're in one that's in the process of unfolding. Which just is so exciting. With, yeah, live, mm. just enjoy the ride. You don't, you, we don't know what the outcome is going to be. Next question. Yep, next one, go on. Oh, sorry, you do one now. I've done all the questions I, so I, far. I, I haven't got them. I, I haven't got them in front of me. Oh, you have got the I, oh, no, I have. Okay. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. No, I have. I have. I have. It's all right. I'm being a Luddite. It's okay. 
You know me. Granite City Tesla, um, <laughs> who says, that's a great name, could you suck all the methane out of Titan or other gases out of Gas Giant with a spaceship and a long hose, make a small comet out of it, and set it smashing into Mars to increase the, the, the atmosphere and repeat? Bit mad. Yes. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, so, so the idea of smashing things into Mars, comets into Mars, is has been proposed, and it will be a great way of delivering volatiles and gases and and other th- water and such to Mars. Um, and by doing so, you would definitely warm up planet Mars. The problem is, is that the the solar wind of the sun is relentlessly tearing away the atmosphere of Mars and throwing it off into space. And so unless you could solve that problem, which is how do you stop the sun from wrecking Mars, you're just going to get yourself back to that same situation that you were before, and you no longer have any comets. So the um one of the ideas that was proposed by actually jim green nasa nasa's science director was you put a um some kind of shield out at the uh mars sun l1 lagrange point that blocks the solar wind from striking mars which would then allow mars's atmosphere to replenish does it make sense to pull them from other places well it all depends on the gravity well um you know jupiter has a enormously powerful gravity well that you would have to be pulling material away from Jupiter. It doesn't come for free. Mm -hmm. Even Titan, even Venus. I mean, it's Mm. just as expensive to take gas away from Venus as it is to launch stuff off planet Earth. Why not just load up tankers of water and fly them to Mars? So that's why you want something that's relatively easy and comets are already just floating through space looking for something to hit. Flick them in the right direction. Yeah. (laughs) So comets comets are your way. But until (laughs) you solve the the atmospheric loss problem, you're just going to go back to square one. So the Mars umbrella at Lagrange 1. (laughs) Right, go on. Next one. Next one. So David's... Ooh. David Swiris... We'll go with Swiris. Apologies, David, if it's not right. Um, he says, can we infer anything about objects just outside the observable universe by observing objects just inside the observable universe and looking for otherwise inexplicable movement or light? Ah, I see what you're saying there. I see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So- so, so right. So I think, you know, we're sort of imagining when you're imagining the universe, you're imagining this gigantic sphere and just looking out into space. And here's the part that we can see. And then there's the other part that we can't see. And it's kind of like you're on a, the ocean and you're on a boat and you're like noticing how there's like smoke rising over one horizon. And therefore, mm. there must be like a fire that's just over the horizon. You can't see it, but you know, it's there because you're seeing the smoke. But that's not how the observable universe works. Yep. As we look out into space through the universe, we are looking backwards in time. And the observable universe is literally the beginning of time in all directions. And so the reason why we can't see any farther beyond the observable universe is we can't see beyond the beginning of the universe itself. That is the hard limit of what we can see. And yet every year that goes by, the observable universe gets one light year bigger because we're now seeing one more light years worth of universe that we're seeing the birth pangs of another light years worth of universe. And so every year that goes by, our observable universe grows bigger. Mm. And so we can never see beyond that, beyond that point. Good question. Good answer. I like that. It is very concise. Right. We'll whip through the last, uh, last few. Go on then. Kevin Casey. Mm. Here we go. 
Um, is space expanding everywhere, but for those objects that have significant gravity or any force appearing not to? That is, I believe galaxies, solar system, etc. appear unaffected. That is, does the hypothesis suggest that there is an extension stretching of existing space everywhere, regardless? Great tweets, always a pleasure. There we go. Um, I think I know what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, so the, this idea yeah. of the, the expansion of the universe, and this is, of course, what was predicted or measured by Hubble back in the 1930s, that the universe itself is expanding. And originally, it was understood that this was like the leftover momentum from the Big Bang, whatever force set off the expansion of the universe in the beginning of time. Um, and then, of course, back in 1999, we had the discovery of dark energy. Not only is the the universe expanding, but actually the expansion of the universe is accelerating. And so people wonder, like, why isn't everything growing? Why isn't mm. the solar system getting bigger? Why isn't the Milky Way getting bigger? Mm -hmm. And the reason is because the local gravity of various objects is holding them together more strongly than actually the feeble force that is attempting to expand them apart. So it's only over the largest scales. Um, Essentially, anything that is within about 3 million light years of the Milky Way is gravitationally bound to the Milky Way, and they will all eventually collapse together into one mega galaxy, <laughs> Andromeda, Triangulum, and about 60 uh, dwarf galaxies are all going to be, and the Milky Way are all going to become one galaxy in the, yeah. in the far future, because the power of the gravity that's holding those together is stronger than this expansive force. But once you go beyond about that 3 million light years range, um, which is essentially everything else in the universe, they are all being carried away from us at this expanding rate. And the strength of that expansion is stronger than the gravity that is pulling galaxies up together. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if there was some galaxy that was, say, 5 million light years away from us, which I, I don't know what the closest is after after the, our local group, um, they, they will never collide with us because, yeah, gravity is pulling them together with us, but also the expansion of the universe is carrying them apart. And it's that expansion that's happening. So at a local level, gravity wins and is able to pull things to keep things together, despite how hard the universe is trying to expand them apart. Excellent. Very concise. We like concise answers. We're never concise on our podcast. No, no neither am I. Go in. So final question. We've got GKT Wales says, supermassive black holes at the heart of galaxies must be pretty damned hungry. Just how much mass disappears into them? Where is that mass? And does it just mean they get progressively bigger? Uh, yeah, so... I mean, like, like, there's about 17 different things to explain here, but, uh, but yeah, you know, uh, astronomers know that there are supermassive black holes with millions of times the mass of the sun located at the heart of pretty much every galaxy that they see. And when these, when these supermassive black holes are feeding on material, then these are called quasars and they are blasting out enormous amounts of radiation. Now, the radiation isn't coming from the black hole itself. It's actually coming from the accretion disk around the black hole. And the way I always describe this is it's kind of like water that's going down the drain in your bathtub and it sort of builds up. That's why you, when you open up the drain in your bathtub, it doesn't all just disappear instantaneously. It takes some time because the, you know, the, the pipe is <laughs> only so big. Yeah. So, um, and so, you know, as a black hole is attempting to gobble up, say, a star, it, it can't eat it all in one bite. And so it has to, the material sort of builds up in this disk around it. Um, but in the end, that mass goes into the black hole and just increases the mass of the black hole. So where is that mass? It's in the black hole. And of course, black holes are neither black nor holes. 
Yeah. Does that mean that they get progressively bigger? Yeah. So the the mass of the black hole increases and the event horizon that surrounds the black hole also increases to a larger distance as the black hole consumes more material. Um, and then it is just locked away from the universe for an incomprehensible amount of time. So black holes can just keep feeding and feeding and feeding. Until there's forever. nothing but black holes left. Until there's nothing but black holes. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like you put a bunch of spiders in a uh, in a jar and the, in the end you just have one, one spider. One giant spider. One big spider, <laughs> one big fat spider. Yeah. Well, Fraser, thank you so much. It's been a joy. Happy to do it. Yeah. And thank you for answering all of the questions. No problem. From everyone tweeting in and sending them in. So yeah. Yeah, that's 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 the uh, the question show format that I do. So every week I do a question show and just random questions from the viewers. Stop. Yeah, we take um, we tend to answer a question every episode. We almost plan it so that it sort of, you know, fits in with the theme of yeah. of the given episode. I, I highly recommend get it wrong, let people correct you, do better next time, <laughs> rinse, repeat. Yeah. We did that on there. We did a live show, didn't we? Yeah. In lockdown. And we had we had some we had some questions. We prepared a few questions and then we took a few live questions and <laughs> some of those were real curveballs. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, those those are fun. Those are the ones mm. that I like the best. I like the one where I have to like, I don't know. Hold on. I now I want to know. Yeah. I've actually some of these have turned into uh, whole articles or videos. Hmm. Someone asked me, um, like, where in the solar system could you survive briefly without a spacesuit? Ooh. Ooh. Well, Mars briefly. So, <laughs> yeah. And so, for example, you could survive, say, under the water on Europa, swimming mm -hmm. around in the ocean briefly until you drowned. Um, you could be falling, holding your breath, falling through various of the gas giants as the temperature and pressures were appropriate until you mm. had to breathe. Until they were. Um, <laughs> yes. You could survive um, in the upper cloud tops of Venus until mm. you had to breathe because of the temperature and pressure. And so you're really looking for places where the temperature and the pressure Where the will reason not you die you. is because you run out of air, not yeah, yeah, you yeah. freeze yeah, so, or you, you explode. Know. Right, yeah. So that's the, that's the reason you die is because you run out of air. So if you had like, like if you had a, uh, if you had some kind of breathing apparatus on, you could survive for quite a while because the temperatures and the pressures aren't going to, as you say, you know, freeze, burn, or crush you or explode you. That's a fun so, question. I like that. Well, and now, see, now you're now you're going to get a bunch of emails about exploding you, and I understand you don't explode in a vacuum. No, <laughs> I, 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 saved, I was. I just ugh. saved you the. I just saved you the yeah. email. I, 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 she's she's done a stage show with me about this, and I you still know. said explode. <laughs> I know. As soon as it came out, I was like, I regret this coming out of my mouth yeah. now. <laughs> Did you ever see the 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 one? It was actually handled. Oh, I forget. There was some science fiction show that we saw where a person. Oh, it was. I know it was Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, and I couldn't believe it. But someone got stuck in an airlock, and and then all the air was pumped out, and they and then they Exploded. were in a bad way, <laughs> and then they they saved them and brought them back because a human being can actually survive being in the vacuum of space briefly. Mm. Yeah. Until you until you uh, asphyxiate, so or suffocate, 
So it was pretty, pretty amazing. And of course, they have a famous scene in Battlestar Galactica where they dealt with that as well. So, so there you go. Don't send the email. Freeze King, it has been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Anytime. I'm, I'm amazed that it took us this long to make this happen. I know we, yeah. I think we talked a couple of years ago about doing a, a podcast yes. together. But yeah, yeah, there you go. So whenever you want to do another one of these, just let me know. Time has no meaning. <laughs> we'll be back. <laughs> Awesome Astronomy is produced at Orbital Sound Limited by Ralph, Paul, Jenny, John and Damien and is free to use and distribute with attribution. We promote general science, astronomy, space science and rational thinking with more resources on our website at awesomeastronomy.com. If you want us to read your comments out on the show, send us your views, opinions, questions or critiques to the show at awesomeastronomy.com. Tweet us at awesomeastropod or give the Awesome Astronomy Facebook page a like and leave your comments there. Thanks for listening, and from Cydonia Base, end of transmission.